Good morning. Earlier this summer, when Pastor Curran and the session of this church afforded me the solemn privilege to come before you again in the pulpit, I wondered what the message would be that the Lord would have me to give today, and uh, context for that was readily provided in the sermon series that uh, Jerry had taken us through already this summer, that of John 17, uh, what is usually referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer, and I thought it would be an opportunity then today for us to take a look at Jesus as high priest and to remind us of some things that I think we already pretty much know, uh, but oftentimes just kind of pass over because it's such familiar material to us. So you've already had some readings uh, strategically chosen from Leviticus and Hebrews uh, to provide some background to this, but uh, let, us, uh, let us pray first and then turn us attention to uh, our text this morning. Lord God, as we come before this, your holy word, inspired, infallible, pray, Father, that I, as the vehicle or the tool, would be out of the way, and that only your word would be spoken forth and be heard, that the things that are true and good and beautiful would be remembered and treasured in our hearts, and all of the dross would be instantly forgotten and abandoned. Pray, Father, now, by your Holy Spirit, you would guide us in our understanding of this, your holy word today. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. In all honesty, um, the entire book of Hebrews would be the appropriate text for a message like this, but we don't have the, the time. Uh, I rather doubt that you have the, uh, the staying power to be able to go through all of this. But uh, um, So I thought it best to try to pick out um, the passage that best communicates this. And, and in fact, that also becomes somewhat of a difficult task because Hebrews is such a rich book that I could have gone to just about anywhere. But we are today in the very end of chapter 7 and the very first couple of verses of chapter 8. These are found for you on pages 1004 and 1005 of your pew Bibles. This is the word of God. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And may God add his blessing to the reading of this, his holy word. Most of the days that we live are pretty ordinary. 
Um, we get up about the same time, breakfast, and go to work, go to school, do our work around the house, have other meals, come home, spend some time with family, go to bed. And it goes pretty much like that from day to day with relatively little interruption. There are a few variations uh, here and there. Um, and on occasion, we recognize or celebrate special days. But from time to time, of course, we have what I refer to as days of drama. Days in which things that were not expected, um, sometimes happy, sometimes very tragic. And these days are often carved into our memories and are difficult to forget. We think of the events of the 7th of December in 1941, when this country suffered a surprise attack from an unlooked-for enemy, and it plunged us into four years of devastating war. Think of the events of 22nd November, 1963, and the sudden and unexpected taking of a popular president, a man that had reinvigorated, if you will, the spirit of America for a new age and set us on a course to the stars, or at least the moon, if not the stars. And then we lost him all at once. And then, of course, we remember the day that we have just spent this last week in solemn remembrance, the events of 11 September 2001. And all of us, I think, just as many who were alive at the time of the Kennedy assassination, or for that matter, there are probably a few stragglers here who do remember the events of Pearl Harbor as well, too. Um, but for those of us in this room, 2001 is, is very fresh, and uh, I can certainly remember where I was on that day, and it's a day that's marked uh, tremendously in my own memory. And of course, the Israelites of old had days that uh, they could look to and remember, and were often called to remember through the various uh, rites and ordinances and feasts that uh, the Lord prescribed for them. But the most dramatic day in the life of the ancient Israelites was not really the day that they crossed the Red Sea or the day that Solomon dedicated the temple or even the day that Ezra read the law of God to the people that were returning from exile in Babylon. Really, the most dramatic day took place every year, as we have already read, on the 10th day of the seventh month, the one day in the year, the holiest days, the Day of Atonement, when special sacrifices were made to atone for the sins of the nation. The one day in the whole year in which God allowed one man, the high priest, to pass through the heavy veil and come into the very core of the tabernacle, later, of course, the temple, that which is described as the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God himself. And as we have read just now in Leviticus 16, Moses described an elaborate procedure for carrying out this august and sober task. It was not just any priest, but the high priest, one particular man, who undertook a ritual cleansing and then robed himself in special garments and prepared special blood sacrifices. And in particular, he was required to offer a bull to make atonement for his own sins and those of his household before sacrificing the other animals. And then he filled a censer with live coals and sprinkled on it an abundance of incense before passing through the veil. And that incense, as it took fire, for lack of a better word, 
created a sweet-smelling cloud that effectively screened, screened him from the mercy seat above the ark, or that which was between the cherubim and the, the temple, specifically so that he would not die when he came into the immediate presence of God. There was still a shield there that protected him from being in the unbearable, refulgent glory of God. And then he sprinkled some of the blood of the bull, followed by some blood from a goat. And this, accompanied by the subsequent banishment of the scapegoat into the wilderness, accomplished an atonement for him and for the rest of the nation, good for one year. And this, the next time that the tenth day of the seventh month came around in the calendar, the whole thing was done again. And the next year, and the next year. And the next year, as Leviticus says, a statute for you forever. We learn elsewhere that Israel developed the customary um, and rather pragmatic practice of tying a rope to the ankle of the high priest before he passed through the veil in case somehow he became incapacitated or perhaps even died. I mean, very frequently the high priest of Israel was an elderly man. And certainly the emotional strain caused by the awful seriousness of this task to be accomplished could bring on a fatal event. So that in this manner, the high priest's body could be retrieved from the Holy of Holies without any other person having to go in to bring it out. As the place was strictly off limits to everyone else on pain of death. And this was the way that a sinful people could dwell in the presence of a holy God and not be consumed. There is tension, there is fear, and there is difficulty in such an arrangement. It could hardly be more than an uneasy peace. Well, as I've said, we heard to talk about, and the book of Hebrews certainly brings this out, uh, about Jesus' role as our high priest. And yet, in his earthly life, Jesus was not a priest. He was not even of the tribe of Levi, from which the priests had to come, according to the law of Moses. But he was of Judah, and the, the, the genealogies of Matthew and, and Luke bear this out in, in great detail. So how is it that Jesus has become not just a priest, but our great high priest? Now, the scriptures instruct theologians in an idea that is referred to in the Latin, and you know there always has to be a Latin phrase in my sermon someplace, as the, the munus triplex, or the threefold office. Munis, of course, is the word that we get municipal from, so a city or a, some sort of an organization. So it refers to the office. And triplex is easy. That just comes over in English as is triple, threefold. So threefold office, prophet, priest, and king. And this morning, we have already sung hymns. The coronation hymn that we sang is, of course, a recognition of Jesus' role as king. And we look to him, as, of course, as well, too, for his, his role as a prophet. He speaks the word of God to the people. And today, I'm going to take a look a little bit more about this priest. Again, a high priest. And as the book of Hebrews says, a priest appointed not by men, but by God. He had a divine commission, specifically Although he was not a Levite, he was not, and he was not called to the office of priest as a Levite, he was called according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, I won't go into this in any great detail, but you can recall from the uh, accounts of the interactions between Abraham and Melchizedek in Genesis that Melchizedek was the 
priest king of Salem. He, he, in his own self, fulfilled two of the roles, if you will. And very mysterious figure. But the psalmist, and again, the book of Hebrews, refers to a priesthood that comes after the order of Melchizedek. And again, the Hebraic Hebra uh, priestly system was not of the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a unique figure, but he's then brought forward prophetically by the psalmist and again in, by the author of the book of Hebrews in recognition that Jesus was appointed or commissioned by God a priest in this unique and special order. So let's take a look more carefully at this passage today. The author here lays out a number of contrasts between the Levitical priesthood and the priesthood of Jesus. And I don't think I'm giving away any secrets because it's really the, the stated uh, purpose of the, of the author in this book is to demonstrate that in every way, Jesus' priesthood is superior to that of the priests of Levi. So take a look again at the passage. First of all, the priests of Levi were limited by their mortality. They had what you might refer to as the ultimate term limitation. They lived for so many years, as all of us do, three score and ten, according to the biblical prescription, although many of us managed to do a little better than that, by the grace of God. But then, inevitably, they died, and they had to be replaced. And Leviticus even creates that system. It refers to the fact that the son would then follow onto the father, and it would be like that generation after generation after generation. And furthermore, there had to be many of them simply to stretch over that period of time. The existence of the nation of Israel was many, many generations. And so by necessity, you would have to have many, many high priests. And also, one man could not nearly accomplish everything that had to be taken place of. If you look at the procedure that is outlined for us in Leviticus 16, as well as other parts of that book, it's a busy thing to create all of these sacrifices. But even on the Day of Atonement, when it really falls upon just the one man to do all of this, he had to have an awful lot of help. By contrast, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently. He has no time limitations. Yes, he died, but he rose again and he lives forever. Continues forever, eternally. Therefore, there is no need to replace him. Unlike what the purveyors of the Da Vinci Code might have said, there was no, there was no next generation, if you will. Jesus did not have any children. There was no need for that. No one else has to carry on the office. Secondly, the priests of Levi were limited by their effectiveness. Human beings, subject to fatigue, liable to making mistakes, lacking in knowledge. From time to time, we see glimpses of that come through in rather spectacular terms. In numbers, we have the account of the sons of Aaron. It only took one generation for things to go off the rails temporarily at any rate. Nadab and Abihu, they thought that they could improve upon, innovate, if you will, what was given, prescribed by God in terms of his worship, and they paid the ultimate price for it. They were killed where they stood. Can you imagine what it must have been like for any of the Levitical priests remembering that story as they go about their daily business, how careful they would have to be Inevitably, some mistake would creep in, but how much fear and trembling would come into all of that? Jesus, on the other hand, 
is able to save to the uttermost. In his human days, of course, he was subject to fatigue, but now he stands at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, in the heaven of heavens, always interceding for us without fatigue. He does not blink, he does not wink, he does not nap. He always lives to make intercession. He makes it perfectly, never an error. There is no fear, absolutely no fear. The priests of Levi were limited by their sinfulness. Sinners, just like the people on whose behalf they acted, subject to all of the requirements under the law for making sacrifices on their own behalf. They were not some kind of special class of extra saintly men, although in many instances it may be true because they were men of God and undoubtedly influenced by the Holy Spirit. There may have been a certain degree of sanctity that did come in to their personal lives. They were closer to God just by very virtue of what they were doing on a day-by-day -day basis, and that has to have an effect. God rubs off on people. But the prophets were certainly not convinced of the fact that the shepherds of Israel were blameless and took them to task in any number of passages. So, Jesus, on the other hand, is, as the author says in this passage, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, not in the sense that he would not associate with them, but of course it did. Uh, that was one of the criticisms that the Pharisees and the scribes had during his early ministry was that he was an associate with tax collectors and sinners, you know, with, uh, with gluttons and wine-bibbers and things of that nature. So, so it is not that he is separated from sinners in the sense that he has no associated with them, but he's separated in category. He has no traffic personally with sin. Yes, he is the sin-bearer. Yes, he bore that with him. But now, as, we, as I stand here today, that is all in the past. That is done. That is completed. He bore the penalty for our sins on the cross, and he said at the end, it is finished. That's done, complete, over, forget it. And he's exalted above the heavens, and I'm going to speak more on that in, here in a moment. The priests of Levi were limited by the kind of sacrifices that they were able to offer. First of all, again, a little redundancy here, they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. And only then could they offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. They had to be cleansed themselves first. And the sacrifices that they could offer were ultimately unsatisfactory. Chapter 10, verse 4 the author reminds us, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Well, why then was all of that created if it was completely futile? It was a foretaste, if you will, a looking forward, a picture of the greater things to come. It was an emphasis lesson that the people of Israel recognized that sin is serious. Sin requires a life. There is a life debt payment that has to be made for sin. That was told to us from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 2, for that matter, refers to it. So the blood of animals is unable to take away sin. How much reassurance did you get as far as your status before God if you realize 
that everything that's being done may just not be enough, ultimately. That when it comes to it at the last day, that God's going to say, well, I'm sorry, you just didn't sacrifice enough. Or you forgot that one over here. Jesus, being sinless, of course, has no need to offer sacrifices on his own behalf. Indeed, he offered himself once for all, a perfect sacrifice, one that has no need of repetition, and, glory be, it is completely satisfactory to God. Once for all, completely takes care of the problem, nothing further needs to be done, it is accomplished. Fifthly, the priests of Levi were limited by their imperfection. They were the best thing going at the time, but it was a compromise. It was something to rely on until a better thing comes along. And in fact, inherent in the very procedures themselves is the promise of something better coming. It's always a looking forward. This is for now, but we have a better thing coming. The whole history of Israel was made as a prelude and a preparation for that. Jesus was made perfect as a priest. And here in the text, it's not so much a meaning that he's perfect in terms of moral perfection, although he certainly has that, but in terms of his fitness or his suitability or his competency. Everybody likes to know that the person they have working for them is competent, right? Don't automatically or naturally go out of your way to hire an incompetent person to come and fix something that's broken on your car or in your house or what have you, right? Absolutely not. You want and you study and you search for I know in my household this is certainly the case. There's a great deal of diligence done before we finally decide on having somebody come out of the house to do something. You want to find somebody who can do the job. Jesus fits that description perfectly. He is completely competent, completely suitable, completely fit. He is the perfect priest. You could not get a better. So, let's summarize then the contrast between the Levites on the one hand and Jesus on the other. Many priests, one priest. Priests that were taken by death, a priest who died, his own permission, by the way, remember? He said, you don't take my life from me, I give it up. But raised to life and lives forever. Priests that were impermanent versus priests the permanent and continues forever. Sinful priests versus the sinless Lamb of God. Many sacrifices repeated over and over and over and over again versus one sacrifice accomplished once, once for all, without any requirement for repetition. On the one hand, we have the weaknesses of men, and on the other, we have the strength of God. On the one hand, we have a general provision under the law. And on the other, we have a special provision apart from the law. Remember, the order of Melchizedek is not part of the Levitical law. It's a divine commission, special appointment. As we will see here momentarily, ministered in man-made facility. The tabernacle, blessed and prescribed by God. The temple later that came along to replace it versus the minister in the real holy place that is made by God and not by man. On the one hand, 
there were many, many, many animals that were sacrificed. And on the other, it was a sacrifice of himself. As we have just talked about, they were imperfect, he was perfect. And then finally, where they offered uncertainty, he offers certainty and assurance. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 through 20 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Christian, hang on to that. Trust in that. This anchor can never be dislodged. The chain that holds you to it will never be broken. You can rely on this to the uttermost end of your life and realize that when that time comes, he will receive you unto himself and you will be with him forever. This passage now has a special place in my heart because as a preacher, I can't ask for anything better than chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The point is already made for me. It's right here in black and white. The author tells you what it is that he wants you to take home from all of this. Okay? We have such a high priest. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. You can't get any closer to God than that. That is the exalted place. Jesus is literally the Father's right-hand man. He is in all of his counsels. He listens to everything he says. They are in complete concord and agreement along with the Holy Spirit. And he ministers in the real holy place. This is not some construct, you know, behind, in the middle of a, a series of tents, behind a veil, or within stone walls in a temple that was constructed by the hand of man. Those were simply replicas. Those were models or types, if you will, things that were done on earth to reflect dimly the realities that exactly exist in heaven. So whereas the priests were ministering, and then again, only one time a year by one person in all of that, in a man-made, almost want to say artificial, if you will, circumstance, Jesus has his high priestly ministry in the very real Holy of Holies. That place that Isaiah the prophet entered into is recorded in the sixth chapter of his book where he saw the exalted God on his throne shining in all of his refulgent glory and he could not bear the sight. It was so augustly beautiful. So, Christian, what are your reasons to rejoice? in your great high priest, Jesus Christ. He is alive. He is alive forever. He will always continue. He will always be there. As he said to his disciples before his ascension, I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age and beyond, forever. He's capable. He's done it. 
He has accomplished the task that God has set for him. Did it perfectly. Completed to the uttermost. Every last I dotted, every last T crossed. He is competent. Oh, is he competent. He has done it all. He has done it to perfection. There can be no complaint. There is no quibble. There is no quarreling. There is no looking at all of the, the details of the bill, if you will, to make sure it all squares. Take it to the accountant to make sure it all adds up properly. None of that. Absolutely none of that. We have the assurances of God the Father Almighty that this sacrifice, this priestly work, both of atonement and intercession, satisfies his requirements completely. This high priest is no stranger to us. In the times of Israel, especially when the nation became populous, it would be impossible for the one high priest to know everybody in the land of Israel from whom he was making atonement for. What has Jerry said? The best you can get is about 150. Well, there were a whole lot more than that. This high priest knows you personally. Christian, he knows how many hairs you have on your head, or don't have, depending on the circumstances. He knows you to the othermost. He knows you from the top of your head down to the very tips of your soles. He knows you inside out. And yet he loves you. He has died for you. He's accepted you. He even now lives to intercede for you every single second of every single day. And his ministry is real. Absolutely real. I don't care what anybody else wants to tell you, all the skeptics and mockers and naysayers that are out there. This is the truth. He is there, and he lives forever to intercede for you. For those of you gathered today in my hearing who may not quite have come to the point in your lives where you believe that Jesus is everything that Scripture has said and that I in my own poor way this morning have tried to describe for you. I ask you one simple question. What are you waiting for? You hoping for a better idea or a better plan? Do you think that something else is going to come along and get you a better deal? 10% down or something like that? A coupon come from someplace that you can cash in? Won't happen. Jesus himself, the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father. There is no other name under, which, under heaven by which we must be saved. This is God's provision for your sin. This is God's way of telling you, this is how I'm dealing with what you have accomplished in your life that falls far short of my glory and far short of my standard. Are you looking for a more certain hope? There can't be any. You cannot get the 100% guarantee that comes with this. We've already looked at the passages that said, sure and certain anchor for the soul. You won't find anything. There is no rock, there is no metal rod that exists in anywhere in this world that is more certain than the intercessory ministry of Jesus Christ. So are you looking for a better mediator? There isn't any. And there's not Buddha, there's not Moses, there's not Muhammad, there's not Joe Smith and the bar down the street. None of those 
or God's provision for your need? Are you waiting for a better time? Now, disabuse yourself right now of that. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day, by the Spirit of God, He calls you to come to Him, to be cleansed, to be made whole, to be restored, to be reconciled to the Father, to come into the peace that passes all understanding and which can never be lost. My friends, he ever lives to intercede for us. Rejoice in that great truth. Let us pray. Lord God, how grateful we are, how humbled we are to know that it was nothing that was in us. We are not ourselves lovable, and yet you have loved us because you have loved your son and you have given us to him. And we that are in him have all of his benefits. And we know that as long as we remain in him, that he will save us to the uttermost and that we will be with him forever and ever. We will share in his glory, share in his inheritance, and forever and ever be numbered among the blessed. Help us to remember that every day. Help us to live the reality of who we are in Jesus Christ, in whose precious name we pray. Amen.